Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today we have a couple MCHD medics joining us in a repeat Monday morning quarterback episode. We have one of our in-charges, Rich Sarah. Hi there. And Captain Kelsey Adams. Hello. And Rich and Kelsey were involved in a critically ill uh, patient transport uh, several months ago here in Montgomery County. And fortunately or unfortunately, they delivered the patient to one of the local ERs where I was working. And we got to take care of this patient together. And there were some just awesome learning points that really hit on some of the things that we've talked about on the podcast before. There's not going to be a whole lot of new here but this is a really excellent real-life case example of some of the tenants that we teach here at MCHD, some of the physiologic and pathologic you know, hard stops that we talk about and why these are important and how they really play out in real life. Sometimes you know, the podcast episodes, the blogs, the textbook chapters are great, but how do we put these into play in real life? How do you make these decisions to do certain procedures, give certain medications, or maybe not do said procedures or give certain medications and try to get the patient the best outcome as possible. That's really, really the key. So let's roll into the case a little bit. Tell us about the case from your perspectives. How did the call notes come out? What did you see on scene and how did you prioritize your decision-making y'all? And I'll let Rich start as the in charge. Kelsey, kind of chime in as the captain on scene. Kind of describe the day, how you know how it went, and what your thoughts were as things progressed. Sure. Yeah. So we were actually about a mile away from the call when it dropped. Uh, we got the the dispatch notes and we saw where it was. It was a mile away. We started going towards it before any other notes actually populated. Um, and then we saw MVC um, pickup truck versus a tractor trailer on thirteen fourteen, which. If you're not familiar with that road, it's a, a narrow road. It's a two-lane road, but it's fast. So a lot of people try to pass uh, going either direction, and this truck actually tried passing a tractor-trailer and went head-on with a, another tractor-trailer going probably more than 55 miles an hour. When the notes finally did populate, it said uh, the pickup truck was on its side, uh, possible entrapment, one patient, and then the rest of the, the notes started populating district chief got added which it was kelsey at the time uh they added a second ambulance and more fire rescue uh so we rolled up on the scene there was a pickup truck in the ditch on its side uh with pretty significant damage to the tractor trailer that we saw as well as the pickup truck uh we got out uh my partner and i jacob actually did super super good job on scene as well with me um the patient wasn't trapped we were able to kind of look into the cab of the truck to see what she looked like if we saw any movement if it was going to be a a doa or if we're going to have to do anything but the first thing in our minds was as soon as we pull her out we're going to have to work a traumatic arrest because i mean it was significant damage high mechanism uh so we were we're really preparing mentally for that and kind of working our way through what we're going to need to do if she's still alive and move on from there i really like the idea of taking the scene into account the the mechanism you saw i mean just two smash vehicles high rate of speed and really starting with the worst first and saying 
you know, what are our goals going to be with a traumatic arrest? How are we going to work that? What are you going to do as the in charge? What roles are you going to assign to your attendant and really starting there even before you get the patient extricated? So you're being proactive instead of reactive. Now, you're hopeful that you're not right. right. But when you see that, that's a pretty reasonable place to start. I really like that. So you were thinking this is the worst. Yeah. And it was pretty bad. Let's yeah. let's be honest. What did you see when you arrived, Kelsey? Yeah, so I so was, you were, I mean, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you real quick. Okay. So you were, and I want to be sure everybody, listeners out there understand the roles. You were in the captain write-up program here at MCHD. So you were, Kelsey's captain here. We have a program where captains can train and get a little bit of a taste of what it's like to write up as a district chief clinically. And you were in that role that day, correct? Yes, sir. I, w- I picked up uh, District 1 okay. as overtime. And I was actually over at another station. Uh, I parked, and I was about to go visit a crew. And I saw their unit get dispatched to an MBA. So I was checking the notes to see, like, what I need to be on my way to that. And as the notes started to populate, um, as Rich was explaining, uh, it seemed bad before I was even added. So I said, I'll just proceed non-emergency until because I was seven miles out to that incident. And then once I got updated to an unconfirmed entrapment, um, they added me. And I heard uh, Rich go on scene pretty quickly. He updated within a critical patient, and he asked my ETA. So I knew it was all of those are, okay, this is bad. (laughs) He was there quickly. Where are you? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Critical patient, all those things. So how long were you on scene before Kelsey Roberts, do you think? Um, Probably not longer than 10 minutes. Did you guys have the patient out at that point? Yeah, by the time Kelsey showed up, we were, we were actually packaging and, and loading up into the ambulance. So talk a little bit about what you expected versus what you got. Yeah, so we definitely expected, as uh, soon as we pulled her out, um, we expected her to, to arrest. Um, actually, when I first looked into the cab, the firefighters did say that she was moving. Um, when I looked in, she indeed was moving, and that was a good sign for now, but we all know extended um, extrication times and thankfully we were on scene quickly from when it did happen so we were kind of working within that time frame of I mean tra- traumatic calls time is of the essence so thankfully we got on scene quickly the fire department did a great job getting her out um, and my thought process was I need hands I'm going to need help and um, if she arrests we, we all kind of know what to do so once we got her out we got her on a board got her on the stretcher and Kelsey was pulling up at that time she had the lucas ready with us uh, or with her got in the back of the truck and we basically just started quickly assessing her and trying to figure out what's what's going on so got her out extricated into the truck what was your focus kelsey so when i arrived i saw two units on scene i saw rich and his partner had already got the equipment there the patient was on a backboard they were extricating her and the patient was moving so that told me they have it handled they're moving to the ambulance i went and checked with the other ambulance to assure all the patients were accounted for and then i got into the back of the truck and the first just looking at this patient um, it looked like every limb was broken Uh, there was blood and secretions in the airway and initially they were not moving a whole lot and once i got in the back rich already had the attendant up front so it was okay kelsey's on here let's go and then we started transport, but it was, my initial thought was, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> so where did you start? I, you did, you absolutely did. And you got a lot of that done in between the time that you left and the time that you got to me. How did you prioritize that work? What steps did you guys take? 
Well, for right off the bat, it was airway. There sure. was it was not patent. Um, Rich was prioritizing ensuring that all bleed external bleeding was controlled. Um, I was suctioning the airway, and at that point, the patient started to move a lot more. Um, they had a, maybe like a GCS of six at the most, and they were moving these seemingly broken extremities to where we couldn't keep monitoring equipment on. Uh, we tried to get the IO, we couldn't do that because they were moving, and we made the decision like, hey, pull over, pause, we gotta get ketamine on board, and we gotta monitor. I love it, we go back to ketamine for control and ketamine for assessment. We talked about that early on in the podcast. This is a prime example of a patient that is critically ill, agitated, just classic traumatic delirium that we have no access on. We can't keep monitoring on. We have to know oxygen saturation. We have to know what our heart rate is, what our blood pressure is. So at some point we have to use sedation to get us there. So I agree 120% with, with that decision. So you, you pull over, you administer some ketamine, you're able to get the patient on the monitor, able to get some access, correct? I correct, mean, she, yeah. she arrived with access to me. That happened in the pullover. What did you see first thing on the monitor? So you've got her suctioned, you've got an IO place, you've got some ketamine on board, you got the patient back on the monitor. Where were you then? So at that point, we both kind of looked at each other and said, you know, with the blood and secretions that was in the airway, if we can't keep that clear and then we sedate them, we might have to intubate. And getting the patient on the monitor, uh, the blood pressure just kept coming back as weak pulse. Rich did a good job delegating to the firefighter on board to obtain a manual, and the firefighter couldn't obtain anything. We still had pulses, but we couldn't get a blood pressure. Uh, we saw, secondary to that, we couldn't get a pulse ox reading because of the low perfusion to the the extremity and we both kind of looked at each other and said I mean whether this patient needs to be innovated or not we're not going to sit on scene trying to meet these parameters because that will significantly delay them getting to definitive care so we elected to uh, implement the rule of 15s pre-oxygenation nasal cannula non-rebreather push dose pressures fluids uh, double NPAs and resume transport you see me fist pumping over <laughs> here because that was that was the correct decision. This patient had weak pulses because the perfusion was was terrible. The presumed broken limbs were indeed all broken. Now, little spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you you could have intubated the patient, but you got the airway suctions, you got the rule of fifteens in place, chin lift, jaw thrust, all the good foundational airway management pieces, and the patency issue relieved itself right talking back to the recent airway patency versus protection podcast if you've got secretions in the airway if you've got sonorous breath sounds soiled airway from our episode sonorous from the episode those are patency loss signs but they also can be addressed with foundational airway maneuvers like suction like positioning like chin lift jaw thrust so you did those things and then what did you see on the monitor? Did you guys ever get vital signs? I, you know, the case is kind of a cloud for me, yeah. too, because it was chaotic. Yeah. And I was thinking back as I was putting the episode together. I can't remember what the vital signs were when you guys arrived. I, I they weren't, like they a weren't dummy. great. Yeah, they, they <laughs> certainly weren't great. I think after we were, we were definitely struggling before we sedated her. After we sedated her, I think we finally got a blood pressure of, it was actually, uh, kind of laughed at this afterwards, we got a 
46 over 48 reading and everyone's like mm, i've never yeah. seen a, a flipped <laughs> blood pressure before so she must be bad yeah. so when we finally did get a blood pressure we're like at least we have something to work off of and progress from um but it really did take until we controlled her with with sedation to finally get all the monitoring devices on we had capnography in we saw that she was uh, breathing adequately enough to just have a non-rebreather on with NPAs. And I think our next blood pressure was 50s systolic, maybe. And that was correct. And how about yeah. SATs? Where were SATs, Kelsey? Do you remember? Uh, well, once we were able to get the, the fluids on board, the push dose pressors, we could finally get a SAT reading. And at that time, we got 95% with all of the pre-oxygenation on board. How'd your waveform look? I've, I'm pretty sure it looked pretty good yeah yeah what i recall was an upper mid 90s sat with in title of about 40 almost mm-hmm. like yeah that's too good to be true right. Right. but look yeah. at the waveform it's like okay she's ventilating well right oxygenating pretty well uh tell me about so you gave some fluids you gave some push dose you gave the ketamine you gave one more med in there txa boom so we got our txa because she was clearly hypotensive so yes. two, two grams of txa for our protocol here and you guys hauled it in to the hospital. Yes. Tell me about the push dose and the push dose decision. I, if you're a surgeon out there listening, I don't know if we have any surgeon listeners to the podcast, but this would have been sacrilege some time ago, maybe sacrilege to some folks now, but we were really in the end trying to save the brain. And that's, that's, that's the key here. We know we had likely traumatic brain injury just from the polytrauma that exists. we got such low perfusion. We know that yes, likely hemorrhage is what we're dealing with but if we can prop up that cerebral blood flow somehow our thought is that that's at least a temporizing measure for that would you guys have transport time probably from the time you stopped to the time you got to us 10 minutes maybe that's if that. yeah so about 10 yeah. minutes so we're not putting them on a presser for two days right right 10 minutes to try to prop them up you gave several doses how did how did the patient respond kelsey so the ability to obtain a blood pressure i think responded well um and it's not so much, okay, are we going to innovate? Um, so we should probably start doing push dose and rule of 15s, the pre-oxygenation. It's the clinical course and the ER will absolutely innovate this patient and setting up the patient and the next provider for success by optimizing that patient the best we can. And fluids weren't cutting it. So giving a little push dose along with the fluids, not just the push dose <laughs> right. and, uh, and and from a fluid standpoint some more sacrilege we gave some crystalloid yes we did uh, <laughs> about 500 cc's if yeah. i remember correctly mm-hmm. you know in, in the studies where we look at harmful crystalloid and trauma often those studies look at leaders and leaders and leaders over longer periods of time there's 500 cc's of crystalloid this is just a prop up this is not a long-term resuscitation strategy we know that we're going to prop up cerebral perfusion with a little push dose, with a little crystalloid, not delay time, and get the patient to definitive resuscitation and definitive care. So I'm going to ask you this question, Kelsey. Rich, you can chime in. <laughs> I want you to be perfectly honest because okay. this is what we're about here. Describe <laughs> the ED changeover. Were you nervous coming in with no definitive airway? How nervous did I look? <laughs> <laughs> so I was absolutely very nervous about coming in with no definitive airway both me and rich knew it was the correct decision for the patient and what our medical directors would expect from us however i don't know about anybody else but i hate that feeling of i'm about to be in trouble (laughs) 
Yeah, 100%. So, so bringing in the patient, I was thinking, you know, Rich was doing a fantastic job, and I didn't want the reception of the ED doctor to be hyper-focused on no tube and then kind of just no longer listen to Rich's uh, handoff because they're like, okay, well, these guys, like, lost credibility. And now, usually when I bring in a patient and I see you there, I do get a little nervous. It's kind of like, okay, did I do everything right? However, walking in and seeing you there, I was like, thank God. He's going to know, like, everything <laughs> we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you didn't look uh, nervous. You looked very focused. And the pause you gave us on, okay, just give me the story prior to moving the patient. And I could talk in our verbiage. Like Rich could tell you, uh, rule of 15s were implemented. We couldn't meet the DSI parameters. And all of that was completely understood by you. And it was like, okay, uh uh-huh. And you even like checked, like, yep, nasal cannula. How long have you guys had the rule of 15s on? It was, uh, I thought it was a great experience oh yeah we she's not bsing me yeah no no real yeah 100 percent. make make my heart get yeah Yeah. we i mean we have we absolutely talked about it all the way to during transport about hey we need we might need to innovate this patient at some point and but we had the rule of 15s we had all our hard stops in mind and we didn't have a blood pressure for the longest time and we finally decided she's breathing on her own she's breathing well her lung sounds were good we cleared out her her oral uh, oral secretions with suction, and um, we just decided to transport. She was oxygenating finally once we finally got some perfusion, and we walked into the ER. I felt the same way. Anytime <laughs> I see Doctor Patrick in the ER, he kind of he kind of gives us this look, and then after I gave the report, he kind of looks at me, said, "Good job," and that's all I needed. It was like it was the pat on the back that I never yeah. got from my dad or something. <laughs> Hey, you're making you're making me feel old now. At least give me at least give me big brother, big brother, big, big brother. brother. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, when I work in district, there's nothing better than taking changeover from y'all. We talked about our last uh, one of our last cases on here was with with Chief Hall, and it's just really excellent to be able to speak in the same language w- during that changeover yes. and to know what you guys were thinking. I do know that there was a time in my career, I'm sure 10 years ago, if you had brought me that patient unintubated, I would have probably been a little bit flustered. But part of this comes from growing and learning with, along with you all as a medical director and, and following the data and following the science of resuscitation and knowing that, I feel very, very comfortable that if you had attempted to give that patient paralytics, whether it's rocuronium now, succinylcholine five, six, seven years ago, they would have arrested. I, 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 hemodynamically, from a vascular tone standpoint, the pressure was legit 50, and it stayed 50 for quite a while. So I have no doubt that that decision to withhold was life-saving. I, you know, I, I just I support it. It was a bit discomforting to me because what I saw when the patient arrived was a real sick patient. And my first look was... ABC, old habits die hard. So I went straight to the airway with my thoughts. But I stopped for a second as I listened to you guys and said, 99%, 40 in title, no signs of patency loss. The airway was positioned well. You had the patient suctioned. Does the patient need intubated? 100%. Yes. Do they need intubated right this second? Not when the blood pressure cycled at our first one, I believe, in the hospital was 52 over 36 and it was real, you know, thready pulses, mm-hmm. mangled extremities like you guys talked about. So first thing I did was I went back and said, 
welcome to 2022, Doctor C C A B. And uh, I, it was really, it was an awesome resuscitation. It's one of those that it's been several months ago now, and I still think about this one. I'm like that's could not have been done better. Uh, I rarely say that, but it was pretty darn smooth. I had my partner in the room with me. Trauma surgeon arrived shortly after. We had really, really excellent nursing staff on that day. Y'all were there to help and, and lend hands. I, I'm hard-pressed to think that we could replay it and do much better. Put the fast on the right upper quadrant or the ultrasound on the right upper quadrant for the fast, and there was a clear stripe, so we had a blunt trauma, positive fast. We knew exactly what was going on. There, you know, there was plenty of sources for blood loss and for altermentation, head injury, hemorrhage, all the extremity trauma and extremity fractures so you know you got blood loss there i need knew the patient needed to be intubated but we started with with resuscitation so y'all had an io in i went to the head of the bed to man the resuscitation and the airway eventually my partner took putting in a, a trauma introducer for resuscitation he got that in and it seemed like a second and before I turned around, we had a unit of blood, a unit of FFP, and a unit of platelets in, and the pressure was still, I think after the first one-to-one-to-one, we were still 65. Let's go with number two. 75, let's go with number three. 85, so it was four rounds of one-to-one-to-one with two grams of calcium before we got up above 90. And the surgeon came in the room in, in the midst of that, running smoothly, and of course, his question was, "What's what's going on with the airway?" <laughs> I, you know, I'm glad you got that question yeah, on us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh, I got it. I got it. And and honestly, it, you know, surgeon I've known for a decade, and I've rolled my eyes out more than once and said, "Give me just a second. I don't want to kill her getting it." Right. And we got a we flashed a systolic at at 92, 95, somewhere around in there. I don't know how long you guys were there. I can't really remember, you know, because y'all were doing your job and right. getting back to work. Yeah. And in my mind, it's just sort of blended from the changeover into the patient care and got up above 90, followed our own rules, had had rock ready, had additional sedative ready because the patient was starting to move some again. Yeah. You know, your, your ketamine probably was at that 20 to 25 minute range like we talk about. So yep. we we're probably in that range where we were starting to, to run out. So we pushed some more ketamine, pushed rocuronium, had the had the pressure up above 90, added that calcium on that we talked about on here before and got the patient intubated really without any complication. There was no, thankfully, there was minimal facial trauma. There wasn't a lot, you y'all cleared the airway. Right. Whatever was there wasn't actively uh, hemorrhaging or exsanguinating. So it ended up not being a difficult airway. There wasn't uh, you know, a lot of facial trauma, vomit, active bleeding. So we got the airway uh, taken care of and took a big deep breath, but then we really had a lot more work to do. Yeah. Hundred percent. I mean, so to to speak to that, I mean, we came back maybe an hour or so later, and of course we're going to check on her. And the I, I saw the monitor pressure was in the nineties, so obviously she had a long road to go. What after we leave, essentially, what's that next train of course? What happens in the hospital? So we had a positive fast. We had a ton of resuscitation to initiate. We had to get an airway, so that probably took. 20 minutes to 30 minutes it seemed like at some time that was two to three hours but pretty quick i mean the we had the the belmont up and running that the blood flew in like just a waterfall 
I looked around and I was like, is that round two? And the nurse was like, that's round four. Oh, wow. So we got, we got four, four rounds of one to one to one. They had, you know, they went back to the blood bank for a second cooler. Oh. So we were, we were resuscitating really aggressively and got the airway. So at that point, okay, now we can go, we've got a pressure, we've got an airway. The decision there can be, you know, from the trauma surgeon standpoint, and that's not my decision. Could that patient have gone directly to the OR? Yes, that would have been a reasonable decision. You've got a positive fast. You've got a resuscitated multi-system blunt trauma patient. The honest answer in the world that I see is that a lot of times when you get that pressure up, even with a positive fast, a lot of those patients go to the CT scanner. It's just the way the world works. It's not always the way the textbook works. So that patient went to the CT scanner and we had, we had some head injury. We had all the extremity trauma. We had some free fluid in the abdomen. We had some, some broken ribs, all the things that you would expect to see. But the patient came back to the ED for prep for the OR. I don't remember exactly why, what the discussion was. There was some discussion between trauma surgery and orthopedics, a little bit outside of I was still, you know, minding the resuscitation and making sure that our access was good, making sure that we weren't dropping blood pressure at all, making sure that our vent settings were okay and our, our end title and our oxygenation were not compromised. And then I got the wonderful task of, hey, can you go take care of some of the uh, lacerations and some of the washout? And honestly, I love taking care of lacerations. I don't mind at all. It's, I'm probably a freak amongst ER doctors. Most people don't really like that. I see the patient as mine. Closing, cleaning, I, I, I like to do that. It does, doesn't ever bother me, but this one was a bit excessive. I, If I remember right, I think I placed probably 60-plus staples. There was a lot of washing, a lot of debris, and a lot of staples. So that was actually a little more time than I expected to spend. The patient eventually went to the OR for the intra-abdominal bleeding. There was liver, liver injury. Uh, omental injury, small bowel injury. That, so that all got fixed first. The orthopedic uh, fixes were all delayed. Uh, the patient was in the hospital, ended up being in the hospital for about a month uh, with discharge with pretty darn good functional status. So this is one that your odds aren't great with the presentation, the yeah. mechanism, the initial vitals, the amount of resuscitation that was required at the beginning. Uh, you know, if the, I was going to ask the question to you all at this point, what do you think would have happened if this patient had been cared for in the age of RSI? Now that I'm giving you the dad compliments that you never had, yeah. Rich, I guess you all don't remember what RSI was like. I'm going to have to date myself. But let's say that you had ketamine and rocuronium or sucks that patient on the scene. We've already answered the question, but what do you think happens, Kelsey? So with the, I mean, if you give that paralytic, you are just asking for vasodilation and no blood pressure whatsoever equaling death 100 <laughs> percent. yeah yes yeah. so i think the mindset of changing from a rapidly innovate this is the important thing to do to note in trauma the important thing is the quick scene times giving them to definitive care and providing like hemodynamic stabilization the best that we can and not to the goal is not to intubate so putting that on the back burner once we clear got the patency issue fixed and pre-oxygenating the best we could or 
led to a way higher success of that patient's survival than just trying to get a tube in. And I think also with the getting the TXA on board quickly uh, played a huge role in the patient's survivability as well. From a TXA standpoint, we're stabilizing what the body's already forming. Yeah. But like you know, like you said, you've got active resuscitation. You've got you know you've got some crystalloid to start. Then you've got all of the blood product resuscitation that you get once you arrive to the hospital. The patient's going to be by default cold. So from a cold standpoint, that's going to increase your coagulopathy. Acidotic, there's no way around it with all of the the trash that's released in the bloodstream with all the extremity injury, plus poor perfusion, you're going to have some level of acidosis, increase your coagulopathy. Uh, you know, your calcium is going to be sucked up by the one-to-one-to-one times four. So we were giving calcium as much as we could, try to, try to combat that. But you've really got the lethal diamond hitting you right in the face. So to try to stabilize the clots that are there with TXA, that's the role. We know that TXA quicker equals better. This patient got TXA with probably within a half an hour of the injury, maybe even quicker than that. So when you look at all the TXA data, is it a miracle? We've talked about this a bunch on the podcast. It's not a miracle, but the earlier you get it, the better and the better your outcomes can be. So do we know it helped her? No, we don't, but we sure gave her, High probability. Gave, gave the patient the best chance we could. What's the learning point you took from this one, Rich? Uh, definitely scene times. Um, Obviously, we know traumas. We want to stay on scene no more than 15 minutes. Or we have a we have a goal of 15 minutes for most of our activations, and uh, I definitely think we may have or I may have rushed the scene a little bit too quickly because we had to pull over and and control her. I think if we took an extra couple minutes before we left on that scene, we could have had a more controlled environment to ensure that patient safety, crew safety, that we could ensure that she was getting to the hospital. Um, in a better condition but it did work out and really trusting the crew that you have i knew when kelsey got on the truck i can take a sigh of relief she had the airway i knew my partner was gonna help out wherever he needed the firefighters on scene were were willing to help and wanted to help and we took one with us so really trusting the process and and time dilation is a real thing in these urgent scenes you think you're on scene for an hour but in reality it's been 30 seconds and you're like why aren't we moving why aren't we going yet but after you, you kind of step back, you look at it all, it really was within a few minutes that we got everything done. We could have probably spent two or three more minutes making sure that um, she was secured to the backboard. She was sedated, that she wasn't pulling everything, all the monitoring devices off. So we knew that we were going to have a, an, oxygen, or an oxygen saturation and a blood pressure at some point. Um, but overall, I think the teamwork and making sure you're, you're focusing on the important things before you just get up and go. That's that's something I've definitely taken away and, and going to improve on for the next one. It is such a balance, and it's you know it's tough because that one, yeah, I wish I'd have taken a, another minute to secure things before we left, so we wouldn't have had to pull over. The next one's going to be, man, we should have left a minute sooner, <laughs> right? Because we could have gotten there with no trouble. It's always going to be a bit of a push pull and a balance, and you just have to do your best to 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 pick the right time to make that decision and make it decisively. And if you have to stop and reassess and in this situation, if you don't have vital signs and you don't have access and you can't monitor the patient, then you got to pull over and take care of it. I, I don't necessarily think that was wrong or right. I th- think it's the way that it went yeah. and y'all adapted and adjusted and reassessed and it worked out fine. 
Let's wrap it up here, y'all. First of all, before we wrap it up, I do want one more thing. Which which fire crew were you guys on with? We got to give the fire folks credit because they extracted the patient like champs, helped y'all on the way in. Super super valuable part of the team because we can't do anything unless we can get to the patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was Caney Creek, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yes. I believe it was Engine Eighty Two. I might, I might, yeah, might be mistaken. Yeah, because it was over in Medic 32's territory. Correct. Yeah. So yep. thanks to the to the Caney Creek Absolutely. folks for being the true first responders in this one and getting the patient out, lending his hands, doing an awesome job like they always do. Got to give them credit there. Circulation, airway, breathing. It's the way of trauma. Us ABC folks all the time, every time, have to back up a second and not criticize no airway because that was a a life-saving decision in this situation because CAB involves the sedation and the paralysis decision. And if sedation and paralysis is going to compromise the circulation to the point of circulatory failure, then it needs to be held off until we can resuscitate. That is the key foundation of delayed sequence intubation and resuscitation before intubation. TXA earlier is better. Great job in all the chaos getting the TXA in. I know it's a stair step, a roadblock, but sometimes things like, no, we just got to go. Just, we got to go. TXA, uh, y'all got it in. And I can't imagine that it wasn't some benefit to this patient. Same times are vital. You hit it rich. It's got to be balanced with being able to monitor, resuscitate, control, safely transport the patient to the hospital. That doesn't mean access, recess bundle, and TXA are not vital as well. So we have to balance that scene time with the proper resuscitation steps that need to happen. Can they happen on the scene? Sometimes they need to happen in the truck. Sometimes TXA especially is one of those that we want starting in the truck, not on the scene. There's no reason to delay rolling wheels for that two gram IV push. Lastly, I I can't wrap this one up without just thanking you all for the excellent communication and report that we got in the hospital. Good communication at changeover for all the listeners out there, whether you're on the medic side, whether you're on the emergency medicine side, it's the best part about the job in general for me is that teamwork aspect of, hey, we got this super sick patient, and when we accept them in the ED, y'all are giving them to us with the expectation that we're gonna take over and not muck up yeah. The fine right. work that yeah. y'all just did. Yeah. And so, uh, it leads to better emergency department clinical decisions when we know what you saw, the actions that you took, and the progression. Because it, it allows me not to operate in a black box. I know the mechanism. I know the steps that have been taken so far. I know what the patients responded to or not responded to. It's a lot easier to know where I need to go with my next decision because my decision is not the first decision in the patient care process my decision is about the 60th you guys have made one through 59 so awesome job thanks for joining us today on the podcast another good monday morning quarterback uh discussion this was dr dixon's better name than mine so we sit back we look at the we look at the cases that we share as mchd medics thanks rich and kelsey and the medical director so this is lucky one that went really well didn't have to beat myself up too bad we picked we picked a good one here because this one really reflects in a nutshell a lot of the teaching that we talked about on the podcast over the past couple years a lot of our ce topics and the focuses that we have as a service overall so for all you listeners out there if you have questions ideas thoughts you want to pick our brains you want to tell us what episodes we should uh, produce next, please send us an email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. 
That is an open email box, and we reply to everybody that emails us. If you're listening to us more than once, please leave us a review. Wherever you listen to your podcast, five-star, of course. We accept nothing less. If you have uh, criticisms, send us those. We'll fix them, and then leave us a five-star review. As always, we'll be back with a new episode soon. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Patrick. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.